Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the February 2022 guest speaker talk from the meeting of the Whitechapel Society, 1888. Dr. Helen Mathers holds a PhD from the University of Sheffield and lectures on Victorian and women's history for the Open University. She has been researching the life of Josephine Butler for over 20 years and her talk this evening, Josephine Butler, Patron Saint of Prostitutes, is based on that research and Dr. Mather's book of the same name, first published by the History Press in 2014 and recently re-released in paperback. So without further ado, let's venture into the Crutched Friar in the East End of London to hear Dr. Helen Mathers on Josephine Butler, Patron Saint of Prostitutes. Welcome, Dr. Helen Thank you. I'm I'm delighted to see you all in person uh, for the first live, one of the first live lectures I believe you've had. It's certainly one of the first that I've given. Um, When I, I looked back, I was thinking it was roughly two years ago that I did a lecture live. And when I looked at my notes, I discovered it was actually the 5th of February, 2020. So that's quite a coincidence. Um, And um, I really did want to speak to you in person if I possibly could. So thanks all for coming. But it's also great that lots of other people are listening to this on Zoom. Um, This lecture, as, um, as you've just been told, is about a Victorian woman, Josephine Butler, and a a Victorian scandal, or a number of scandals, which she discovered and campaigned against. Um, And one of the major campaigns she was involved with was in London in 1885. So I know that your society was founded to look at and research the Ripper murders, and this was only three years before that. So there's a lot of relevance to you, your group in particular in what I'm going to say, and I'll come to that campaign at the end of the talk. But I'm going to start by just giving you a little bit of background on um, on the kind of society that Josephine Butler lived in, and in particular, what it was like to be a woman in the time she lived. Because Victorian women were completely subordinate to men. Legally and morally, they had few rights, for example, they, had no, they were not allowed to own their own property. It had to belong to their father or their husband. They had no right to divorce, even if their husband was very cruel. Um, and if they did get a divorce, which had to be by act of parliament, separate act of parliament for each divorce, um, they, they would lose custody of their children. So they had to be desperate. Um, They had no access to universities until the 1850s and 60s, and even then it was very, very small numbers of women who went to college. And in fact, um, even school education was very, very poor for girls. Of course they didn't have the vote, um, and they had very limited freedom. They were expected to stay within particular boundaries. Sorry, that's not moving on. (laughs) Just move the slide on. 
Ah, here we are. So we call this these kind of boundaries the spheres, and they were they were separate spheres that existed in Victorian society. So middle class girls and women were expected to stay at home. They weren't supposed to go out into the world on their own, or, or and when they did go out, it had to be a very strict limits on what they could do. And they inhabited what we call the separate the separate domestic sphere. Um, and within that sphere, they had a lot of um, rights, and, and they were, you know, a middle class mother would be able to look up, would be able to decide how the children were educated and looked after, and she would direct the household and the servants if they had servants. But she wasn't allowed to go outside that sphere. Um, the public sphere was limited to men. And the public sphere was work and business, you know, politics, commerce, etc. The ideal woman was the angel in the house who, um, who stayed at home within the public sphere and was kind of idealized by the men. So you can see in this picture that she's wearing a white dress and she's, she's uh, the a actual epitome of a, a good moral woman would be the angel in the house. Um, and there was a strong emphasis on Christian teaching in relation to this. We, women should obey the, the leadership and the teaching of men. Um, and they should never go out to work, because if they went out to work, then they would lose their respectability, and respectability was really highly prized. So... There was morality, Victorian morality in, in the lower classes, so to speak, you know, the working class uh, uh, of various degrees of, of uh, wealth. Um, they, of course, they were allowed to work. In fact, the middle class needed them to work because a lot of them were working in their houses as servants. But Christian moral values apply to them as well, um, especially in relation to sexual morality. So an unmarried woman would carry most of the blame if, um, if she fell, and that was the phrase used, into a sexual relationship while unmarried. And of course, if she turned to prostitution through desperation, then she was labelled a fallen woman and stigmatised by society altogether. No one was expected to care about a fallen woman. So I've just got... Um, one or two representations that were popular in Victorian times of different kinds of prostitutes or fallen women. And, and this is the first one. It's called Found uh, by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. And in this picture, you can see that there's a man who's wearing sort of white costume. Um, in fact, he's come from the countryside and he's got a cart with him, which you Uh, kind of tethered in the cart so you can tell that he's come from the countryside and the woman is sort of turning away from him um, and she's looking very reluctant to, to look up at him and she's got white panstick makeup and colored hair and both of those things would have told a Victorian uh, audience that she was a prostitute, she was fallen because only unrespectable women would wear makeup and 
coloured hair like that. Um, and the reason she's turning away is because she's really ashamed. This is a man who, she's come to the city from the country, and this is a man who's come to find her, and he has found her, to take her home and rescue her from her life of shame. But looking at her, we wonder whether she will actually go back with him. Um, here's um, Millet's Virtue and Vice. Um, not really a painting, just, just a, a sketch, but the woman in this one is um, a seamstress. You can see that she's got sewing and also that there's a parcel of shirts on the bottom right-hand corner and that's all the work she's supposed to be doing. And seamstresses were famous for having working in attics and tiny rooms and having huge amounts of work for very little pay. And so in order, in order to get enough money to even survive, they were working 16, 17 hours a day sewing. Um, and vice, so she's virtue, and vice is the devil who's come to persuade her, tempt her, to give up her, uh, to give up the, the life of, the moral life of being a seamstress and take up the life of the streets, which would be so much easier for her, much less work and much more money. Um, and this was an, actually a common situation that many poor women came, came to where they were wondering just how they could survive unless they either went on the streets full-time or sort of supplemented their income with prostitution. And the fa final one is a woman who's completely shameless. Um, she's, she's walking the streets during the day with this low-cut dress on, and she's looking men straight in the face, which a respectable woman wouldn't have done. Um, and she's um, looking at this man who's walking with his wife, um, and his wife is saying to her, that girl seems to know you, George. So three very different images of fallen women. So um, Josephine Butler came to care about women like these, um, especially the poorest and the most ashamed. She really came to care about them. Um, and that was, that was even though she had no particular reason, because she herself was a, a middle class, even quite well-off sort of, not, not aristocracy, but what we would call the gentry, sort of landed, part of the landed gentry. And she, um, she decided, in a way, to take them on, to help them, and to campaign on their behalf. And so this is the story of how she came to do that and what she did. So a little bit about her biography now. So here's Josephine Butler, who was born Josephine Gray, um, born 1828 in Northumberland. So she had a rural background. She lived near the Scottish border, um, born at a place called Millfield, which you can see the hunt kind of gathering outside. And she loved horse riding herself. Um, and she lived in beautiful places. When she was seven, they moved to a place called Dilston, which is a bit nearer to Corbridge, but still in Northumberland. Um, and she, this is the house. 
again you can see that it's a, a nice rural house with um, nicer lakes nearby um, and she wrote this about their, their house at Dilston. Um, it was a very beautiful one. It's romantic historical associations, the wild informal beauty all around the doors, the bright large family circle, and the kind and hospitable character of its master and mistress made it an attractive place to many friends and guests. It was a place where one could glide out of a lower window and be hidden in a moment, plunging straight among wild wood paths and beds of ferns, or find oneself quickly in some cool concealment beneath slender birch trees or by the dry bed of a mountain stream. So a lovely place to live. And this quote shows what a great writer she was. And she wrote a great deal during her life even though she herself had very poor education, um, but she, she was self-taught. Um, and I shall be quoting more from her writings later on. Um, her parents were evangelical Christians and supporters of the campaign against slavery. Um, this is her father, John Gray. Um, and he was involved in the campaign against the um, slavery in the colonies, which was going on in the 1830s and 40s. And he brought his children up to share his convictions. And he, 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 he didn't spare them finding out all the details of what slave, slavery was like. Um, so, so Josephine learned at a young age of whippings and brandings and the separation of slave children from their parents. Her father told her of slave sales in which the merchandise was poked and prodded and assessed like cuts of meat. The strongest impact on Josephine was made, she said, by the dreadful treatment of female slaves who were almost invariably forced to minister to the worst passions of their masters. Recalling these stories later, Josephine wrote that they awakened my feelings concerning injustice to women through this conspiracy of greed and gold and lust of the flesh. And this was a crucial insight to her, which she gained sort of in her late teens, that women suffered more than men just because of their sex. Um, and it's how she came to describe prostitutes as white slaves, because she saw that they were enslaved in much the same way as the slaves that her father told her about. She saw that they were imprisoned and suffered for their sexuality. And this was a feminist insight at a time when very few women had a, any notion of feminism. It wasn't even a word that existed when she had these ideas. So she was one of the very first Victorian feminists. Another crucial influence on her was her Christian faith. So she was brought up in the Anglican church by her parents, but she developed her own very individual approach to Christianity through her own prayer and her own Bible readings. And she decided for herself that St. Paul was wrong to say that women should be treated as inferiors in church. You know, he wrote things like, women should stay silent in church. Um, she didn't agree with that. 
Um, and she also said that Jesus Christ himself never did that. He didn't have that attitude towards women, in her view. Um, he had many female followers who he respected and revered. Um, and also, he was especially considerate towards fallen women. So, for example... Um, the, the, the woman in the city who, um, who was described in the Gospel of St. Luke, who washed Christ's feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, and anointed them with precious ointment. Jesus realized that she was penitent and forgave her sins. Um, and she noted that there was also in the Bible this text, ironically written by St. Paul, so he wasn't consistent. There is neither male nor female, but ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And that's, that's a, a text that she always used as a mantra that she believed and she followed. And she also said something which was really very, very radical. That Christ liberated women. Search throughout the gospel history and observe his conduct in regard to women and it will be found that the word liberation expresses above all others the act which changed the whole life and character and position of the women dealt with and which ought to have changed the character of man's treatment of women from that time forward. She wrote that herself in the first essay she ever published. So Josephine married at the age of 23 to a man called George Butler. Unfortunately, I don't have a picture of him as a 30-year-old at the time he married Josephine. I think he's in his 50s in this picture. He wasn't as old as that. But she, that is actually a picture of her at the age of 23, which was painted especially for her uh, engagement. And... Um, um, and George was a, a university tutor. He was working at the University of Durham when she met him. And um, he was a most unusual Victorian husband in that he actually believed in the equality of women. Um, and he wrote to Josephine before they got married, I should think it undue presumption in me to suggest anything in regard to your life and your duties. I am content to leave you to walk by yourself in the path you shall choose. And not only did he say that, but he actually meant it and he, and he followed through during their life. And at many times it was very, very difficult for him. She went all over the country campaigning. Um, she left him to hold the fort. She did things which made like, his life difficult, but he never stopped supporting her. She, she, choose the best, she chose the best possible husband she could. Um, they, they moved to Oxford and then Cheltenham, and they had three sons and one daughter. Um, and it was in Cheltenham that the great tragedy of their lives happened when their only daughter, Eva, who was a beautiful girl, as you can see here, died in a senseless accident at the age of five, she, she and her brothers used to play on the banisters at, at the house um, and sort of three floors up, she fell from the banisters 
onto her head on a stone floor and, and lived for a few hours in convulsions. Uh, just appalling. And it, it changed her whole life. She, she was never the same again. Just have a drink. A year after Eva's death, they moved to Liverpool because George had changed career and he became the headmaster of um, a boys' school called Liverpool College. So he was busy at the, at the school and their sons were going to the school, but she was left at home and she didn't know anybody in Liverpool and it was a big, dangerous kind of city to be living in. And it was then that she said, I became possessed with an irresistible desire to go forth and find some pain keener than my own, to meet with people more unhappy than myself. My sole wish was to plunge into the heart of some human misery and to say, as I now knew I could, I understand, I too have suffered. And the place she found this human misery was the Liverpool workhouse. The Liverpool workhouse was the largest in Europe. Um, and it just gathered together all the poor, the destitute, the criminal, people who were rounded up by the police, people who couldn't, who, who couldn't look after themselves and check themselves in. They, they picked up um, prostitutes who were soliciting on the streets. And um, Josephine chose to go and visit some of those women who were in a place called the Bridewell, which was a, in a cellar, very dark. You know, you can imagine what the cellar was like. There was nothing there. These women were just stuck, locked in down there. Um, and it was dangerous for her to do that. They'd actually killed a previous matron. And when, when she arrived, the, the new matron was very happy to just shove her through the door and lock it behind her. But somehow, despite how different she was, she developed a kind of rapport with these women. What she did was to sit down on the floor and help them picking oakum, which is, you know, old rope from, from, the, from the ships. And it's got tar on it, and you have to pick the tar off so the rope can be used again. It's really, really hard on the fingers. And, of course, she was... broke down a barrier and she kept going to see them and she also went to other parts of the workhouse she went to the infirmary and saw some of the women who were um in, in there you know really ill some of them and then she realized that she had to do something for the so that they could get out and stay somewhere else and so she began to raise money to open what she called a house of help where women could come and be, recover from illness um, and she also opened an industrial home where uh, women could learn some kind of work which would enable them to, you know, su support themselves. Um, and um, she also took some of them in, into her own home. Um, and the first of these was a woman called Mary Lomax. So Josephine encountered Mary Lomax in the workhouse infirmary dying from tuberculosis she caught mary's wistful haggard look went over over to her and began to stroke her hair 
As Mary responded to her touch, Josephine impulsively promised, you shall come with me, dear, and I will nurse you in my own home and you shall be my daughter. She hired an easy car and took Mary home where George was waiting to greet her. Giving her his arm, he led her gently upstairs as he would have led any lady visitor, speaking courteously to her. Mary joined their household in November 1866. Once Josephine had crossed this Rubicon, she proved unable to stop taking in destitute women. George was soon commenting that she had very nearly filled the house as full as it will hold of the dears. <coughs> so she was very, very busy doing all these uh, rescuing. It was, called, it was called rescuing prostitutes in Liverpool. At the same time, she actually became involved in some other feminist campaign. She became involved in um, finding work for women and also improving girls' education. But I, I haven't got time to tell you about those. But she, in any case, she gave them all up because in 1869, a new issue arose which just took her over completely. It was what she called her great crusade. And this is Josephine Butler in 1870 when she became the leader of the Ladies' National Association for the repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts. So what were the Contagious Diseases Acts? They sound kind of quite innocuous, really. But the contagious diseases were actually sexually transmitted diseases, syphilis and gonorrhea. And the acts were trying to prevent the spread of those diseases at a time when there was really no treatment for them, you know, and the treatments that there were were quite often harmful and didn't, didn't, didn't really effect, effect a cure. So the government was trying to come up with a way of stopping the transmission. And they decided that the way to do that was to round up prostitutes um, who might be infected um, and detain them so that they couldn't infect their male clients. Um, so police were allowed to just arrest any woman they thought might be a prostitute in all the port and garrison towns. So it was mostly about preventing the transmission of infection to soldiers and sailors because they were the ones the government were most worried about. So in the port and garrison towns, the police could round up any woman, they could take her to a <clears throat> police station where she could be forcibly examined internally to discover whether she was infected. If she was, then she was detained in a so-called lock hospital until she was cured, or they thought she was cured. They sent her out with a certificate saying that she was clean. Um, and um, the, the, this, this whole process absolutely incensed Josephine. She heard about it from um, the prostitutes in Liverpool who she knew. And they told us um, that uh, they told her the attitude they push us into first is so disgusting 
and so painful. And then these monstrous instruments, that's the monstrous instrument. Often they use several, they thrust in instruments and they pull them out and they push them in and they turn and twist them about and if you cry out, they stifle you with a towel over your face. Josephine called this steel rape, which seems exactly accurate to me because the women were resistant, unwilling, forced to be examined by speculum. Uh, and she also realized that this was a terrible wrong that had to be campaigned against and it was a campaign about women's bodies so women had to campaign against it because it, in a way only women really understood what it would be like to be examined like this there was a man's there was a men's campaign against the acts as well but the women's campaign had that extra power of the the kind of uh, identification that all the women campaigners and all the women in the audiences had with what they heard about what happened to these prostitutes. Um, and also the other thing that made her really angry was that it was about the, it was a double standard that the women were being examined and treated like this and the men were not. They were getting no... They, they got away scot-free really. In fact, they were being provided with clean prostitutes. And they were never, of course the men could infect the, the women, but that was never part of the uh, concern of the government. They thought that just treating the women like this was enough. So, um, let's go back to the previous slide. Oh, not, sorry, it's that one. Yeah, so, um, so that's why Josephine Butler agreed to lead a ladies' campaign against the Axe. She knew that it would be a terrible thing to take on. For a start, it was a woman going into the public sphere, which she shouldn't do. She wasn't supposed to be campaigning in public at all. And in addition to that, she was campaigning about a sexual issue, which women just didn't do. Nobody campaigned publicly about sexual issues. And for a woman to do it was far more, far worse than if it had been a man. Um, but she agreed, to, she agreed to do it despite all that. And she launched the campaign in 1870 and immediately embarked on a new life, traveling the country, um, uh, speaking at meetings, sending letters to um, anybody that she thought would help. She launched petitions and she launched lots of branches of the Ladies National Association. So that's all over the country, there were, le there were groups of women who were helping with this campaign. Um, she made herself very unpopular with a lot of people. Um, there were attacks on her respectability. She, um, she was called a shrieking sister, frenzied, unsexed, and utterly without shame. Many people disagreed with her uh, opposition to the acts. They, they saw them as an essential evil. So she didn't even get support from a lot of her friends. She was deeply upset by that, those attacks, but she didn't give up. She developed a thicker skin, and she also drew courage from her Christian faith. 
because this was her mission. She, as the campaign went on, um, and it lasted for 14 years, um, more and more people became convinced about the, the wrongness of the act, and also a considerable number of MPs were persuaded that they were wrong, and they led the campaign in Parliament, which was essential, of course, if the acts were to be repealed. They, they had to have um, MPs stand up and, um, uh, and propose uh, motions of repeal of the acts. So um, the, the campaign is described in my book. I, I'm just going to give you one or two snapshots from it now. And one of them was an election campaign um, because um, sometimes the, the repealers went and, and sponsored a candidate at a, at a by-election if, if, the, if the main candidates were all in favour of the CD Acts. Um, and on this occasion, they were trying to prevent um, the election of a man called Mr. Childers. But there was a lot of opposition and... Um, um, and this is from the poster, which was at the Pontefract by-election. She had a lot of opposition, and she was trying to organize a women's meeting, and in the end, she only found one in a sort of upper room of a, of a barn. And this is her account of what happened at this meeting. We had to go all over the town before we found someone bold enough to let us a place to meet in. At last, we found a kind of large hayloft over an empty room on the outskirts of the town. You could only ascend to it by means of a kind of ladder leading through a trapdoor in the floor. However, the place was large enough to hold a good meeting and was soon filled. The women were listening to our words with increasing determination never to forsake the good cause when a smell of burning was perceived. Smoke began to curl up through the floor and a threatening noise was heard below the, at the door. The bundles of straw underneath had been set on fire. Then to our horror, looking down the room to the trapdoor entrance, we saw appearing head after head of men um, with countenances full of fury. Man after man came in until they crowded the place. There was no possible exit for us, the windows being too high. Um, above the ground and we women were gathered into one end of the room like a flock of sheep surrounded by wolves. A fierce argument ensued. Meanwhile, stones were thrown into the window and broken glass flew across the room. Our kids seemed now to become desperate. Mrs. Wilson and I whispered to each other in the midst of the den, let us ask God to help us and then make a rush for the entrance. Two or three working women placed themselves in front of us and we pushed our way, I scarcely know how, to the stairs. It was only myself and one or two other ladies that the men really cared to insult and terrify.
so if we could get away, we felt sure the rest would be safe. I made a dash forward and took one leap from the trapdoor to the ground floor below. Being light, I came down safely. I found Mrs. Wilson with me very soon in the street. Once in the open street, these cowards did not dare to offer us violence. We went straight to our own hotel, and there we held a magnificent women's meeting. Such a revulsion of feeling came over the inhabitants of Pontefract when they heard of this disgraceful scene that they flocked to hear us, many of the women weeping. We were advised to turn the lights low and close the windows on account of the mob, but the hotel was literally crowded with women. And we scarcely need to speak, events had spoken for us, and all honest hearts were won. So that's an example of a really dangerous situation. Um, and it's not the only one that Josephine Butler encountered and overcame. <coughs> there was a change in the government in 1880 when liberals were in the majority. And there was a much larger number of MPs who were opposed to the acts. In addition to that, there had been a royal commission to investigate how the CD acts were working. And they showed that actually they hadn't made much difference at all to the incidence of venereal disease. And I think it's quite obvious why they didn't work. So that increased the opposition, but there was but it was still um, very difficult and hard to believe that repeal of the acts would be achieved because, um, especially among the Conservative Party, but also some Liberals, there was a lot of support. So um, a new act, a new bill to repeal the acts was introduced in 1883, and the atmosphere in the House of Commons then was definitely different. Josephine Butler was able to watch the debate from the ladies' gallery as the House of Commons debated and the MPs voted. Mr. Gerard, the steward of the ladies' gallery, crept quietly in and whispered to me, I think you are going to win. Never can I forget the expression on the faces of our MPs in the House when they all streamed back from the division lobby. We did not require to wait to hear their announcement of the division by the teller. The faces of our friends told the tale. I thought of the words, say unto Jerusalem that my, her warfare is accomplished. Then we ran quickly down from the gallery and, and, and met a number of our friends coming out from Westminster Hall. That was nothing less than a triumph for a woman who herself had no vote, was not herself able to enter the House of Commons, um, had led a campaign which was deeply unpopular, um, and had shown that a women's campaign, a women's national campaign, could be successful. Um, it was her greatest triumph, but there are others too. You would think that she would have been, in, been happy with just that, but she went on. She went to Europe to investigate the treatment of prostitutes there, 
and she was horrified by the system of state-controlled brothels in European capitals like Paris, Geneva, and Brussels. And she set to work to create an international organization of uh, to improve the lives of those prostitutes. Um, she gave evidence about girls trafficked for prostitution in Belgium, which you might think was surprising. But as I'm about to tell you, the age of consent in the UK was a lot, lot lower than it was in Europe. So they were being trafficked in that direction. And then she became involved in the campaign that I mentioned at the beginning. And that was called The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon. This was the one that took place in 1880. So that the uh, the meaning of this title is, I think, pretty obvious. It's about young girls, virgins, who are being sacrificed in modern Babylon, which was London, a wicked city, where where um, all kinds of debauchery, cruelty, um, and you know all this story, um, was going on. And the campaign was about these maidens and what could be done to help them. Josephine had become aware of the horrifying scale of child kidnapping and rape in London through campaigners such as the London Committee Against Trafficking, and the Salvation Army, who did a fantastic job rescuing young girls from brothels and looking after them in their own homes. Because many of these girls were as young as 13. Some were even 12. That was the age of consent at the time in, in, in Britain, 13. Um, a, a typical story would be that a young girl from the country was um, offered a job in a smart London house as a servant. So her parents would send her off from home happily, thinking that she was going to work, uh, as, and, get, uh, work, work and get a good job. And then when she arrived, she would find that the house was actually a brothel um, and her duties were to service the clients. And she was more or less imprisoned there. There was really no way she could get out. Um, the, most, the worst aspect of this was that the, the most privileged client of the house would get the chance to take her virginity and to pay very highly for it. Money, of course, which the girl didn't get at all, but was kept by the owners of the brothel. There was one girl who managed to escape um, and so she told her story. She, she escaped from a house in Pimlico, walked across London during the night and sought help from the Salvation Army in, in Clapton. Um, and the Salvation Army saw many of these kinds of girls um, and picked, picked them up from the streets uh, and, tried, and rescued them, tried to look after them and save them. But they were desperate to try and stop this happening in the first place. 
it seemed to be getting steadily worse and more common for girls to be entrapped in this way. So they, along with Josephine, have been campaigning to raise the age of consent. Um, if girls were allowed to become prostitutes at the age of 13, which they were, then it was very hard to save them. Um, and, <coughs> um, and in Parliament, attempts to raise the age of consent have been going on for, for quite a few years. There was a bill brought before Parliament every year to raise the age of consent, and they had always failed. MPs had actually refused to raise the age of consent. Some openly defended sexual aspect, uh, access to working-class girls as a time-honoured time prerogative of gentlemen to have access to these girls. So after the latest defeat of this legislation, Josephine and the other campaigners um, decided to take a new tack uh, and to involve the press. And they found the perfect journalist to take on this campaign. His name was William Stead, the editor of the Pall Mall Gazette. Have you heard of Stead? I thought you would have. And you may know some of this story already, but you might not have heard it from Josephine's point of view. But I'll be interested to hear what you, uh, you know about it and uh, we can have questions later. Um, well, so I, I think that Stead was a journalist of genius. Um, he'd already exposed the terrible poverty of the London slums in a series called The Bitter Cry of Outcast London. Now he took on the twofold task of exposing the criminal sexual underworld of London and finding the evidence needed to raise the age of consent. So the first step that they took was a secret commission in which Josephine Stead and other campaigners investigated the abuse of children in brothels and in back streets and in private houses. Um, they, for example, they visited houses which had padded rooms to drown out the noise of screaming. Oh, what horrors we have seen, said Josephine. And this is, a, this is a photograph of her roughly at that time. You can see how pale she was. And it really, really uh, upset her very, very deeply. Even more deeply in some ways than the CDX campaign. So, um, I'll just I'll read that one in just a minute. So, Stead was horrified by the terrible stories the secret commissioners reported and by meeting young victims himself. And he determined, he said, to turn my paper into a tub, I will damn and damn. And the maiden tribute of modern Babylon was the result. A series of articles which described virgin sacrifice in the heart of London in vivid prose. No details were spared to the horrified readers. Every edition ran out. Every Londoner wanted to read the stories. Such reports had never been printed before. 
Second-hand copies were sold on the streets and passed around even the poorest slums. So just a flavour of these stories is given by Stead's interview with um, a senior Met policeman, Howard Vincent. Howard Vincent told Stead that virgins were available in certain houses and were very rarely consenting parties. Stead responded, do you mean to tell me that in very truth, actual rapes in the legal sense of the word are constantly being perpetrated in London on unwilling victims, purveyed and procured to rich men at so much ahead by keepers of brothels? Certainly, said he. There is not a doubt of it. Why, I exclaimed, the very thought is enough to raise hell. It is true, he said, and although it ought to raise hell, it does not even raise the neighbours. Another story was Stead's image of the Minotaur. One retired doctor, dubbed the Minotaur, by Stead, ordered three virgins every fortnight. The word order was used by both buyers and suppliers, for this was a business, and a highly lucrative one for the suppliers, who generally took 50% of the fee. The business demanded constant fresh supplies, and the suppliers, generally women, were skilled in seeking out attractive and naive young girls. Two procuresses, Mesdames X and Z, i.e. Madame X and Madame Z, boasted to Stead that, at any time, we can undertake to deliver a maid if we get due notice. They groomed nurse girls, who they encountered daily in the park with their young charges, and hired girls as young as 13 away from their poor families in return for fancy clothes and the, pri and the promise of lucrative work. Once under their control, they took these girls to a brothel where they were, they were examined to prove their virginity and raped by a favourite customer. This crime was normally impossible to prove when the girl was of consenting age. Um, and the worst scene of all, Mesdames X and Z told Stead that the girls sometimes kick and scream and make no end of a row. One girl wrapped herself up in the bed curtains and screamed and fought so much that she had to be held down throughout the seduction. It gave me such a sickening, said one of them, that I was almost going to chuck up the business, but I got into it again. After one too many of such conversations, Stead was overcome. Josephine encountered him in his office late one night, sobbing. Oh, Mrs. Butler, let me weep or my heart will break. The impact of these newspaper stories would have been powerful at any time. For example, we can think of the impact of stories from Rochdale and Rotherham in the last few years and how those were dom dominated the press. But in 1885, such stories had never, literally never appeared in the papers before. The effect was electric. The public was horrified and demanding immediate action. 
Stead had predicted that to raise the age of consent, all that was needed was, he said, a vivid and graphic description of the actual evils. And he was right. Parliament was recalled during the summer of 1885. Several weeks of debate ensued and the Criminal Law Amendment Act was passed on the 14th of August, which raised the age of consent to 16. The penalty for having sex with a girl aged 13 to 16 or keeping her on the premises for sexual purposes was two years imprisonment. That was another triumph for Josephine and her friends. Many members of her organization, the Ladies National Association, attended a rally in Hyde Park. A quarter of a million people are supposed to have gone to celebrate this milestone in the protection of women and girls. Um, there's an important postscript to this story, which I'll only have, have time to mention briefly. The Secret Commission had heard that in London, girls could be bought for the, from their families for sexual purposes. Stead decided to try and prove this by doing it himself, so buying a girl from her family, with the help of friends, of course. Um, this girl, the girl that he did manage to buy, Eliza Armstrong was her name, was, was of course not violated, but everything else really was done to her. She was abducted from her parents. Um, she was even examined to see if she was a virgin. Um, and she was um, then taken away from, from London, actually, for some time. Um, her family, who had seemed quite happy for her to go away and in, in really not bothered at all about Eliza leaving home. She was 13. Um, when, when, they found, when they discovered that there was this story in the newspapers about a girl being sold at the age of 13, she, she came to realize, and so did her neighbors, that this girl was probably Eliza. Of course, she wasn't called Eliza in the story. And her mother then got quite upset. And it was a lot to do with her kind of standing with her, with her friends and neighbors. She decided to try and get Eliza back. Um, and, um, and the result of that and the publicity that her, uh, that her mother brought to the case and, and, the, and the publicity uh, from rival newspapers like Lloyd's Weekly, which found a way to get back at Stead, was that Stead was arrested um, and put on trial for abducting a girl against the will of her parents. Here's the, here's the picture of the trial. You can see um, Stead in the middle of the front row. Um, and behind, behind him is um, a woman called Rebecca Jarrett, who was recruited to be the procuress who would find a girl for Stead. Um, this, is, this, is, this was the important part that Josephine Butler was involved in because Rebecca Jarrett was one of her protégés, so to speak, who she'd, um, she'd taken in 
and reformed. She, she had been a, a brothel keeper, but, but she'd been converted. Um, and uh, the Salvation Army had sent her to stay with Josephine. But, but Rebe Rebecca Jarrett ended up on trial, and they were all convicted as well. Um, um, and Stead went to prison for three months, and um, Rebecca Jarrett for longer, for six months. There's Stead in prison. He was always very proud of his prison status. And, and uh, he, used to, uh, he used to wear the uniform uh, every year on the anniversary of his conviction. Um, <coughs> I also made a note of that website, which is really great for Stead, but just some of you know it, it's called Attacking the Devil. It has the whole, the whole script, all the text of the Maiden Tribute articles and a great deal more besides. Um, So I've come to the conclusion of my talk. Um, after her death, Josephine Butler was called the most distinguished Englishwoman of the 19th century. Uh, and you can certainly argue that, but it's a, a title that she would never have taken for herself. She was really indifferent to the world's view of her which is one reason why she's not better known today. Also, her campaigns were very unpopular, and they dealt with sordid topics which people didn't want to know about. So in that respect, she was unlike Florence Nightingale, who did become obviously very famous, um, but her campaigns weren't sordid, and they dealt with soldiers rather than prostitutes, um, but in my mind, Josephine Butler's achievements are just as great as Florence Nightingale's were. Um, she never received national honours of any kind, you know, like a distinguished funeral or burial in a cathedral. And in fact, her grave is in a tiny country churchyard in Northumberland, where she's got just a, a, a simple family uh, epigraph there. So she wouldn't want to be forgotten, though, she, or she wouldn't want her work to be forgotten, because you can easily argue that today, although we no longer have the Contagious Diseases Act, and we, we have the age of consent at 16, in many other ways, things are just as bad as they ever were, and in particular, trafficking has now become a much, much greater, greater issue than it was in her day. There was trafficking, but it was sort of between the continent and the UK, whereas now, of course, girls can be flown across the world. And she would be horrified by that, and that's what she would be campaigning for if she was still alive today. So my, my book ends with a, a thought which was actually given by her friend, James Stewart. Josephine Butler's work is not over, and the legacy she hoped for was that others would follow the trail she blazed. As James Stewart concluded, the world as a whole is better because she lived, and the seed that she has sown can never die. Thank you very much for listening.
And that was Dr. Helen Mathers on Josephine Butler, the patron saint of prostitutes. We'd like to thank Dr. Mathers, Steve Ratty, and the entire committee of the Whitechapel Society for making this release possible. For information about joining the Whitechapel Society, please visit their website, whitechapelsociety.com. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find over 250 roundtable discussions, author interviews, limited-run serials, conference presentations, and Whitechapel Society meetings, all available to you for free. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of the other podcasts released by RipperCast, you can find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.